0: I'm Bob Walker. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Life Church. And I get to have the privilege of preaching to you from Exodus 30 this morning. So you do want to keep your Bible open to Exodus 30. But take a second and think how did you walk in here today? If someone right now asked you what is going on in your life and you gave them an honest answer, what would you say? And then, is this sermon what you really need to hear this morning? And this is a vitally important question to answer because I look around this room and I've spoken with many of you in the last couple of weeks. And what do I see? I see some of us are hurting. You might be suffering physically. You've been sick. You might've been hurt by family members or even by people in this church. You could have been let down by somebody else. You have financial problems. Or you look around and you see racial hurt that most of us seem blind to. And you wonder why God isn't healing this nation. Why God isn't healing this church. Or you have relationship problems. Your marriage is hurting. And maybe even falling apart. Your friendships are hurting. You feel lonely. Or you don't feel like you have hope. Or... You just moved here and you don't have friends. You're lonely and there's just no one to call for simple things like grabbing a coffee or getting advice. And so I could have just described you and I'm standing up here and I'm getting ready to preach a sermon to you about anointing oil and incense recipes, about altar and wash basin construction. And is this really what we need to hear this morning right now? And the answer is, yes, it is. If you listen, if you listen to what the Lord is saying to you in this passage and in the chapters that preceded, you will hear the Lord speak to your deepest needs. God promises in Romans, when he says in Romans fifteen four, he says, For whatever was written in earlier times, like Exodus 30, was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, We might have hope. If you need hope, you're going to find it in this passage. If you need hope sometime in the future or you need to minister hope to somebody else right now, you will find it here. Now, you have to persevere and receive encouragement from God's word, but God will give you hope. And I want to help us in this sermon all to receive encouragement from this passage so that we might have hope. So let's pray together for that right now. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord. Uh, You are the holy God. You're perfect in your holiness. You don't tolerate sin in your presence and we're sinful. And yet you have saved many of us. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the blessings that you rain down We thank you for even the trials and hardships. Even when we can't bring ourselves to be thankful, you help us to be thankful because you use those trials and hardships to mature us, to grow us in the faith, to strengthen us as children of yours who will live forever. So we ask you to help us in this sermon. Teach your word to all of us so that we might have hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to complete our description of the tabernacle, and then we're going to put the whole tabernacle together and see what the Lord taught Israel through the construction and ministry of the tabernacle. And then when that's over, we're going to see what the Lord is teaching us today, us in this room through the tabernacle. So as I was reading this passage, and it's something I do a lot, I was imagining I was a young Israelite boy. And... I have experience living in tent cities. You know, I was in the Air Force, I deployed a lot and I live in tent cities. And the way a tent city works is you have to lay it out in an orderly fashion or it will be chaos. You won't be able to find where you're going. You'll have just mud pits everywhere. And as I was imagining, I was this little Israelite boy, maybe like some in this room, especially the more mischievous of you, which describes most of the boys in this room. I was thinking, how would I find my friend? I would know I'd go down my row of tents. I'd go over to this other section. How would I know how to find the tabernacle? And and, and God describes for us how their camp was supposed to be laid out with the tabernacle in the center. And I know I would just sort of move toward the center or I could count tents or or sections and I could find it. And, and I was just thinking, what would God be teaching me if I was this little Israelite boy? And I remembered as I, in my imaginings, I had gotten it completely wrong. I don't find God based on where my tent is. God is traveling with the Israelites, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. I can see where God is. He is at the center when he stops the the people stop. The tabernacle is constructed underneath where God is. I find myself based upon where God is. I find myself in relation to where God is meeting me. I'm completely dependent upon God in this situation. I'm dependent upon him for food. I'm dependent upon him for water. I'm dependent upon him for direction, even which way we're going to go, and I'm dependent upon him for protection from my enemies. Without God, I am lost. So to kind of back up and look at the big picture, in Genesis 1 through Exodus 29, the Bible teaches us how to be worshipers of God. God wants his people to worship him. That is what we are created to do. That is what we are saved to do. That is what we are chosen to do. Specifically in Exodus 25 through 29 and even into 30, the Bible teaches how God has taken the initiative to dwell among his people so he can be worshiped rightly. Moses is drilling down through scripture To the presence of God with his people. That's what this is about. He's changing exiles. He's changing slaves. He's changing wanderers into worshipers of him. So in the Garden of Eden, God created man to glorify him and enjoy him forever. We are created to glorify God. But Adam rebelled against that. But we know we are doing what we were made to do when we glorify God and enjoy him. And that is what we're doing here this morning. God is teaching us in his word up through Exodus 29 that he wants us to glorify and enjoy him. He's enabling us to be able to do that. That's his overarching message. And in that message, the tabernacle is teaching us that God is drawing near to us. He's taking the initiative. We we rebelled against god we removed ourselves from his presence but he is drawing near to you the whole point of the tabernacle is an invitation in fact it's a command to draw near to god here's what exodus 25 8 says let them construct a sanctuary for me that i may dwell among them that i may dwell i abide among them inhabit with them Remain within. God's drawing near to his people so that his people will know and enjoy him. And the whole world will know that he is God. That was God's purpose with the Israelites. And that's God's purpose with us too. If God's people are going to be able to draw near to God, though, atonement must be made. And I want to repeat this. If God's people are going to be able to draw near to God, atonement must be made so man has rebelled against God and God teaches us for something or someone unholy to come into his presence atonement must be made so what is atonement and the word atonement was used a few times in this chapter and in the chapter that precedes it this whole tabernacle is 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 a constructed in in uh, atonement Uh, instructions are given to us throughout the throughout scripture so what is atonement it means to cover over something to conceal it to atone by offering a substitute for guilt it's always used in conjunction with the removal of sin the removal of defilement of uncleanness the life of the of an animal represented by its blood was required as a substitute for the life of the worshiper That guilt had to be dealt with. It's symbolic of an innocent life being given for a guilty life. And only an innocent life would have the merit to atone for the sins of a guilty person. Another guilty person would have to atone for their own sins or have their own sins atoned for. We know that God taught his people to worship him at altars. And if you look up the references to worship prior to this, You're gonna see mention of altars throughout scripture. An altar is a place of death. It's also a place to deal with sin. Something is sacrificed on the altar to atone for sin. And in in, each instance of worship we read about up to this point in the Old Testament, it's clear that gratitude motivates worship. God forgives our sin, and in gratitude we respond in worship. Many examples, I'm just going to read to Exodus 3.12. And he said, certainly I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. God talking to Moses. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, when God has saved the people, you shall worship God at this mountain. Exodus 4.31. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, about the sons of Israel, and he had seen their affliction, God's just paying attention to them, then they bowed low and worshipped. God has drawn near to his people. He has done something great, and his people have responded in worship. So this passage, the description of the tabernacle itself, is about atonement. Just getting up to Exodus 30, starting in Exodus 29, uh, in verse 4, Moses tells us that there's a sin offering, especially for his priests. Animals are killed for, for atonement, verse 33. They have to make atonement for seven days before entering the, uh, the holy place. And it's through this atonement that we get Exodus 29, 45, and 46. Here's what it says. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. So the title of this sermon is Draw Near to God. He is your only hope. God has drawn near to us. He's inviting us to draw near to him. We have a confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. God has taken the initiative. He is drawing near. He is making it possible for his people to draw near to him. So I'm telling you here today, draw near to God for life. Draw near to God for comfort. And draw near to God for peace and for hope. This sermon has three parts, and the first part is just the completion of the description of the tabernacle. There's five elements in this chapter, and we're going to discuss them all. We started the description of the tabernacle in chapter 25. We're finishing it today in chapter 30. We're completing the description of the tabernacle. The second part is, what does a tabernacle teach the Israelite people? We're gonna walk through the tabernacle to understand what God taught his people about himself through the tabernacle. And then third, the third part of the sermon, we're gonna walk through the tabernacle again to understand what God is teaching us, just to make sure we know what God is teaching us through his tabernacle. God's meeting us today. He's teaching us about himself so that we can worship him and enjoy him forever. So you do need to listen to this sermon carefully and pay attention to this passage so that you can draw near to God and draw near to the God who's drawing near to you. You can be right with God. You can stand before God as a blameless child stands before his good father. You can enjoy his presence. You can be in the presence of a perfect father who loves you and is able to give you what you need. Maybe not what you most want, but certainly what you most need. Children, pay special attention because by the end of this sermon, I hope you can construct the tabernacle and understand what God is teaching you through each piece. The physical objects will teach you about God and how to be in right relationship with him. So I would expect you today at lunch to have your table in front of you with the food and be able to take things that are on the table and show where the walls are show where the bronze altar is and the bronze waste wash basin, Uh, the altar of incense and the golden lampstands and the table of showbread and the most holy place. I expect salt shakers and pepper shakers. And if there's a little bowl that has your vegetables, eat all your vegetables first. And then that can be the wash basin in in front of uh, God's holy place. So listen, and, but not just construct it physically, but know what each piece means. What is God teaching you in that? Parents and other adults also, for all those reasons, pay special attention. And pay special attention so that you do not appear dim-witted in front of your children today at lunch. I beg you. So part one, the description of the tabernacle. Moses divided this passage into five sections. He set them apart linguistically with with words that show he's talking about something different. We're just going to study the last five components or aspects of the tabernacle beginning in verse one, which was a passage that Sarah had read to us. It's the altar of incense. It's small. It's a square altar. It's about three feet high. It's about one and a half feet by one and a half feet. And it's overlaid with gold. As we get closer to the presence of God, the construction materials get more precious. It's portable. There's rings to slide poles into it so it can be carried. Look at verse six. It's placed in front of the veil that is near the Ark of Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of Testimony where I will meet you. The altar sits just outside the most holy place. It was as close as one could get to God, without being in His presence. Let's let Scripture inform our understanding of this altar. Here's what Psalm 141 verses 1 and 2 says: it "says Lord, I call upon you. Hurry to me. Listen to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The raising of my hands as the evening offering." The Israelites understood this incense to be their prayers rising to God. And those prayers were sweet. They were something God wanted to hear. He enjoyed hearing them. They were a sweet aroma to him. Uh, going back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. When he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. The altar is a picture of the prayers of God's people. Aaron burns incense on it every morning. It's a perpetual offering, why? Because God's people are to continually, perpetually be calling on him. God is inviting this relationship. He is inviting us to speak to him. But there's a warning. Verse 9, you shall not offer any strange incense on this altar, or burnt offering, or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. And a little later in God's Word, we're going to see Him describe the incense we're to use exactly. We're not to deviate from His instruction in any way we are to worship God in the way that God says for us to worship him that strange incense alien foreign it doesn't belong there God tells you the incense that is to be uh, used in in the worship of God in the tabernacle And and his people are to to use that incense exactly the Israelites you can imagine yourself in the Israelite camp are surrounded by people who worship God in a variety of ways. But God's people worship him in the way that he prescribes. God's people got to see how the Egyptians worship their gods. God is telling his people how to worship him. But upon what basis are we able to even address God? And it gets back to that theme of this passage. Why are we even allowed to speak to him? Verse 10, however, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. We talk to God because atonement has been made, that debt has been paid. Then we get to verses 11 through 16 and we hear about the census and the sanctuary contribution. Let me read it. The Lord also spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to count them. I looked at all the commentators and they're trying to speculate on what would be the occasion of this census. And some would think it's time to count the people in order to feed them. It's time to count the people in, in order to go uh, to go to war, to number them effectively, and all that might be true. I come at this uh, from somebody who has a, an accounting and money background, and I read something like this, and it says, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to count them, and it's talking about the money they give, you take that census when you need more money. It's, 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 a, it's a way to fund the operations of the tabernacle, but there's a lot more to it than that. It says, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you count them so that there will be no plague among them when you count them. This is what everyone who is counted shall give. And they give a half shekel. It's a small silver coin. It just literally means a weight. According to the, sanctu- the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 gareths, Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everybody brings their own shekel. So you know how this, so you've lived some life. And, and I've lived life as a father and a grandfather. Nothing gives me more joy than to like go to a restaurant. And, and I say, these are my children. These are my children. I'm paying for them. Uh, you can see it in politics that, that uh, politicians will provide money or services to a group of people. And now they're beholden to him. To that person. But that's not what this is about. This is about atonement. And every one of us, every one of the Israelites, were guilty. Atonement must be made for each individual. And so either that person's blood is required or the blood of an innocent person would be required to atone for their sins. Nobody can pay for anybody else. This half shekel. It's not worth that much. So the atonement isn't made by the actual payment, but it points to a full and complete atonement. And it teaches the Israelites that atonement is owed for their sins. And that atonement is owed by them. Nobody else can pay the atonement for them and they are not able to pay that atonement for anyone else Let's just keep reading. Verse 14, everyone, everyone who has counted from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich, they don't pay more. This isn't about you're really able to buy your atonement. You're pointing to something else. The poor won't pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And then you'll take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting for the tabernacle so that it may be a memorial. It's a way for the Israelites to remember. Remember, it's not the actual atonement, but it's a memorial, a way for them to remember for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Each individual Israelite owed that atonement for himself. Each of us owed atonement for our sins. Next, the laver of bronze, or the bronze wash basin. Laver, kind of the same root word as lavatory, a place of washing. Verses 18 to 21. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall make a basin of bronze with its base of bronze. So now you start thinking. It's a basin of bronze. It's not gold. So it's a little bit further away from the actual presence of God, in the in the tabernacle and don't worry we're going to put that picture together in just a few minutes so you put it between the tent of meeting the actual tabernacle so you put it between the tent of meeting and the altar so there's this outer courtyard as you enter there's an altar next is this wash basin this laver of bronze Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and feet from it That's important, and we'll get back to it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so they do not die. And when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and feet so that they do not die, and it shall be a permanent statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. You're starting to hear something about the presence of God, but we're no, we're no longer the ones that are moving towards God in this instance. There's somebody going in our place. For the people of Israel, each individual is not going to this wash basin, only their priest, that priest who's representing them. And then we get to the anointing oil. Starting in verse uh, 22 and going through verse 33, and I'm not going to read those exact ingredients. You can read that starting in verse 22, but it's very exact. This anointing oil is to be used only with the tabernacle. It's never to be used for any other purpose. When you smell this particular scent, you are only going to be thinking about the presence of God anointing oil was oil that was poured or rubbed on a person or thing and it usually meant two things one it sets people or things apart as holy and consecrated or two it confers authority on a person who's anointed so let me read starting in verse 26 with it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offerings and all the utensils and the labor and a stand, you shall consecrate them everything is getting covered with this oil what does that mean you shall consecrate them you shall set them apart to be holy their use is holy their existence is holy they are before a holy god the things that we worship him with are to be holy whatever touches them shall be holy and this this isn't like magic anointing oil you you pour it on something and if i touch it i'm unholy and i become holy that's an instruction only holy things are to touch what is covered with this anointing oil you will even anoint aaron and his sons we heard that last week you consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me you shall speak to the sons of israel saying this shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations it shall not be poured on anyone's body nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It's holy, it'll be holy for you. For whoever shall mix any like it or whoever puts any of it on a layman shall be cut off from his people. And we already heard, what does it mean to be cut off from your people? You don't have food, you don't have water, you don't have direction, you don't have protection. You're dead. And he gets to the incense. And the incense is described in detail. But then in verse 37 Moses writes, the incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. And again, that smell, that particular way that God instructs us to worship him, it's not for other purposes. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So this finishes the description of the components of the tabernacle that we began six chapters ago. So what does it all mean? What does this tabernacle mean to the Israelite people who are putting this together, who are watching it? What was God teaching the Israelites through the tabernacle? These descriptions, they meant something to them. God was teaching them about himself. He was teaching them about themselves. If I'm an Israelite boy in that camp, looking at the tabernacle, what am I to think? And I would tell you, if I was an Israelite boy in that camp, I think I would know I'm not the peak under that tent that's covered in the anointing oil. But those components are carried on poles. They're visible when they're traveling for people to see. I would take that opportunity to go see what was inside that tabernacle, how the components were put together. I would take that opportunity when it's time to put it together to watch that, or when it's time to take it down, And I would have these uh, descriptions and instructions read to me and I think I I would think about that. I think we all would think about that. that The presence of God, we would be interested in learning. So what what do I learn as an Israelite first? That God is holy. He is a holy God. When I look at the tabernacle, what's the first thing you see? You see walls. God is perfect in all his attributes. Sinful people could not even come into the presence of God. He's set apart, but he's gracious. Exodus 25.8 says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. God took the initiative to come to the Israelites. He moved near to them. But God set bounds for the Israelites not to cross. He set bounds and then told them to draw near. He did this in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai. He said, you'll set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. God moved near his people. He desires them to fellowship with him, to worship him, but he's holy. God's people cannot be in God's presence until atonement is made. I'd see the presence of God as a pillar of cloud, but I'd also see the walls. Everything is covered in anointing oil. It smells different, and I know I'm not to touch it. I learn about God's holiness, but then what do I learn? I learn about God's grace. As I look at the tabernacle on the east side, so this is the east side, and what do I see on the east side of the tabernacle? I see a door. There's a way in, and if you think about it, there did not have to be a way in, but there is. There's a way into the presence of God. Our God is gracious. What do I see? At the entrance of the doorway, so I'm on the east side, I see the walls, I see the door, I walk in or I look in, and at the entrance I see an altar, a bronze altar. What happens at this altar? Animals are brought in. They're killed. They're burned on this altar. God is teaching me he's holy. He's gracious. There's a way into his presence, but atonement must be made. My sin must be atoned for to be in God's presence. But more than that, even with atonement made, as I'm looking in, past the altar, it points, there's something that points to a perfect, complete atonement in the future. God is so holy that I need a representative to go past that altar, to go into God's presence for me. As an Israelite in the Old Testament, I need a priest. I can't even go myself. There's so much separation. This priest who's set apart, who's consecrated, who's specially clothed, he's anointed with oil. Atonement was made for him personally. Atonement made for me. And then he can begin to go to God on my behalf. But he's not there yet. The next thing I see as I peek through that door, walls, door, altar. I see the bronze laver, the bronze wash basin. We're not quite to the presence of God yet. But even after I made atonement, I paid my census contribution. I've brought my sacrifice. I sent my representative forward. This priest who's been consecrated himself must wash himself. He is not clean enough. He must ceremoniously be washed again. Even from that short walk from the altar to the labor, he must be cleansed again. And I see how holy is my God. How sinful are we. The price must be paid for us to be restored to God's presence. And now, after that washing, the priest, not me, can enter the holy place. He can enter the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, and I can't even see in there. I would see the comp- I would have seen the components as they were transported, the golden lampstand. So I walk in, or I see it see it to constructed. Past the bronze labor, and to my left, I see the golden lampstand. To my right. I see that table of showbread, the table of the presence. Right in front of me, I see the altar of incense. And then beyond that, I see a veil. So four things, a lampstand, a table of showbread, an altar of incense, and the veil. And that veil separates the holy place, which is this larger tent, from the most holy place. And so by this time, I hope I'm starting to understand that God is holy and it's not insignificant to be allowed into his presence. On my left, on the south side, I see the golden lampstand. It's really more than candles stick. It's seven connected golden lampstands, seven connected oil lamps. It's the only source of light in the holy place. Leviticus 24 teaches us that it was the duty of the priest to keep the wicks trimmed and maintained so that the light of the lamps would never dim. Its purpose is to shed light in front of it continuously. Why does that lamp stand shedding light upon it? Upon, Because across from the lampstand is a table of showbread. It's on the north side. To the right as you're looking in. And on it sits the bread of the presence. God has provided the illumination for me to see his table. A table is a place of fellowship, of sharing food. God is teaching us of his presence with us And moreover, he's teaching us of his fellowship with him. And in front of the veil, straight in front of me, in front of the veil that separates the most holy place is the altar of incense representing our prayers. Prayers perpetually made to the holy God. Prayers that smell sweet. Prayers that are acceptable. They're not strange or alien. Our prayers reach the presence of God. Even after all that, we're still not worthy to enter God's presence. So once a year, after very exact obedience and worship, one representative for all the people is allowed to go behind the veil and enter the most holy place to enter the presence of God. That veil is another reminder that God draws near to us, but he's perfectly holy. He's gracious to provide access to him, but we are sinful an atonement must be made. And inside the holy place, what do we see in there? We see the Ark of the Covenant and atop it, the mercy seat. And if you wanted one word to describe how God deals with his people, it would be mercy. And even then our obedience does not satisfy God's just wrath on our sin. All the atonement we made is not good enough. It points to a full atonement, a future atonement, but for the Israelites, they still need God to show mercy upon them. God deals with his people from the mercy seat. He extends mercy to us. He places his favor on us even when it's undeserved and it's always undeserved. In fact, quite the opposite. We deserve death and we've seen plenty of symbols for that, but we're sinners who choose to sin This atonement never fully cleanses us in the Old Testament, but it points to a perfect, complete cleansing provided by God. So that was the Israelites in the tabernacle. What about us? Here's us in the tabernacle. I'm going to be moving pretty fast. But Christian, hear this. If you're a non-Christian and want to understand our God, and understand his attributes and how and why he saved us. Listen, if you're an atheist, if you're a child, if you're someone who's doubting their faith or doubting that this could be true, if you're a sufferer, if you are suffering, walk through the tabernacle again into the presence of God. So start, there's walls, God's holy, that never changes. He'll never let sin go unpunished. It's always going to be dealt with. And until our sin is dealt with, we are separated from God. We're under a death sentence and our situation is dire. But there's a way in. Here's what John 10, 9 says. Jesus speaking. I am the door. Our door is a person. It is Christ. He goes on. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved. And he'll go out in and out and find pasture. So Jesus, God's own son is the door and it makes sense. Atonement was never complete by our own efforts. The census contribution was made all the time. Animals were sacrificed constantly. There's perpetual offerings on altars. There's washings, there's veils. We need a perfect atonement. Jesus, God's son is the only one perfect enough. He became a man like us. God became a man like us. He lived sinlessly. There was no atonement required for his sins. He had none. And then he took our punishment. He was the only one who could make that payment for us. He had nothing to atone for in himself, but he atoned for our sins so that we can what? So that we can enter the presence of God. We can be saved from the wrath our sins have earned for us. Let's keep walking in. There's the door. And then there's the bronze altar that teaches us that our sins must be atoned for with blood. Either ours or a perfect substitute. Here's what Hebrews 9 says. Verses 19 through 22 It says, For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Paul's entire message was about this atonement. That's why we're preaching it today. That's why we have to understand this. That's why believers have this message and we share it with others. Paul's entire message was about this. Here's what 1 Corinthians 2, 2 says. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus shed blood Paul's message to us is that Jesus Christ made atonement for us on the cross. We get to the wash basin. Here's what Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 says. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that, how did Christ love the church? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. We need cleansing. Titus three, five. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, not on the basis of deeds or even obedience to tabernacle laws, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, we are made alive again in this washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Maybe another way that probably even uh, best, I think, summarizes how we look at that washing from a new testament perspective from our perspective is first John 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and what and cleanse us from all unrighteousness atonement has been made for us by Christ his death on the cross We live out that salvation. We still need cleansing. Christ calls his people to confess their sins. And then atonement has been made, but he forgives us. He washes us. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And it says that he is faithful and and righteous or faithful and just. It is right and good for him to forgive sins because the punishment has been paid. And it's been paid in christ we walk into the most holy place and again we're going past the wash basin into the most holy place and we look in and we see our four things and the first thing is light the golden lampstand. john 8 12 says then jesus again spoke to them saying i christ is the light of the world he who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life But Christians, this ministry has been extended to his people. It's been extended to us. It is our ministry to be light. Here's what Ephesians 5, 8 through 11 says. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. The light exposes darkness. That is a ministry that we're called to. I'm gonna to move to the table of showbread. So we've walked in. The lampstand is to, our, to the south on the left side. The table of showbread that has the bread of the presence on it is to our right. And the table reminds us God is waiting for fellowship with us. Revelation 3.20 says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus said that he was the bread of life. If you hunger for God, if you hunger to be free from sin, come to Christ and be filled and you never need to hunger again. It's through God's grace that we're united with Christ. God fills us with his word. He fills us with himself. Later during this worship service, we're going to symbolize that. We're going to remember that. We are going to eat of Christ, of the bread that represents him as we, as believers take the Lord's supper. And then we look straight ahead again. Right by the veil, there's the altar of incense. God's holy. He sent his son to atone for our sins and now he's the father of his children. He hears us. He delights in us. He enables us to do good things. He enjoys our delight in him, our worship. He's blessed by our worship. Our relationship with him is restored. Our relationship with the world is restored in Christ. But then there's the veil. The Israelites knew there was a wide separation between them and their holy God, a wide separation. Our sin created a barrier but you know what? That barrier was in fact a blessing. If it did not exist, we would have instantly died in our sins. Genesis 3.24 describes aspects of that barrier. It says, from the Garden of Eden. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, in East in the Old Testament is usually describing somewhere away from God. You remember this tabernacle. We're at the East, moving to the West. We're away from God. We're moving toward God's presence. He's painting the picture of that in Genesis. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword. And you're starting to see some of the the symbols that are actually even on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy Mercy seat, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So at the crucifixion, The veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. It was gone. Why? A veil was no longer needed. Christ had made atonement for our sins. Here's how Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20 describes it. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, I don't think any Israelite would think they had confidence to enter the holy place. We do in Christ by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, through that is his flesh. Believers can enter the very presence of God today through the veil by the blood of Jesus. How do we do that? We don't have exact obedience to a lot of laws. That's not how he saves us. We have faith in Jesus Christ. We simply believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is that he died for my sins and we trust that. We rely on that. We call it faith. We turn away from our sins. We turn away from being in charge of our own life. We trust our God. We come to him and trust the atonement that he has made for our sins. I haven't even spoken of Christ as our representative, our great, great high priest who brings us into the presence of God. He, but he did represent us in his death for our sins, and he also represents us in his resurrection. And that's our eternal hope for new life, for eternal life. And so we're at the mercy seat again, that place of covering. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Look how he's described the righteous. Only the righteous are in. The presence of Christ. We are in the presence of God. We are in the presence of God because we are in Christ. He has atoned for our sins. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the wrath for our sins. And not ours only, but for the whole world. So just some short applications. Know God. He's teaching them a, teaching his people about himself in the tabernacle and his word. Know him. I would tell you, if you come to one of our pastors, For counsel, very often you're going to spend some time thinking about, meditating on, learning about who God is. And honestly, in counseling, that's the good stuff. I have lived 61 years. I've been married almost 38 years. The things that really get you through the hard times, that help you grow in the Lord, are the deep things of God. Know Him. And trust in who he is. If God says he's good, believe that and trust in that. If God says he will save you, believe that and trust in that. If he says he has given you his spirit to comfort you, believe it and trust it. So know God. Second application, trust him. Turn away from your own lordship over your own life. Surrender it to God. He will save you in Christ. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Believers, remember how I described us at the beginning of the sermon? We're sinful, we're broken, we're hurting, we're confused, we're anxious, we doubt. Believers, enter into God's presence. I started by saying, Noah, he's holy, he's, but he's also good, and he's your father. He hears your prayers, they're sweet to him. He is with you, he's present. Draw near to him, he'll give you peace. He'll give you comfort. He'll help you endure trials. He'll help you endure pain, and he'll help you endure sorrow. You are a child of a perfect, holy God who loves you. He adopted you at the cost of the suffering of his only begotten son. So wait on him. Don't worry. Trust in him. Wait on him in silence. He will provide all your needs. You have help. The veil is gone. And in fact, you are the tabernacle, the temple of God, a a name for Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. You have him, you have the Holy Spirit, you have his word, you have his promises. Count on those because the God who promises that he loves you is able to do what he says, even to helping us persevere in the faith until he comes again or brings us home. If you're not a believer, Know who God is, know him, trust in him, believe in him. We get a lot of blessings that come with believing in God, of being his child. We don't really realize all of them on this earth, but you get to come into the presence of God, which is the greatest blessing of all and the source of all other blessings. So know him, trust him, and believe. We're coming to the time of our Lord's Supper. So we don't make sacrifices anymore. Atonement's been completed in Christ. So there's no more animals. There's no more priests. There's no more oil. No more incense. In fact, the Old Testament people were saved by faith too. In Hebrews it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it... The men of old gained approval. They walked out that faith by obeying God, by worshiping God in the way that he instructed them to. We worship God in the way he instructed us to. So what do we do? We remember what Christ did for us. We remember the atonement he made. We take the Lord's Supper together to remember that Christ shed his blood to atone for our sin when we drink the cup. We remember we are united to Christ when we consume the bread, which is his flesh or his presence. And now we are in the presence of God. Christ is in us and we are in him. He calls us to remember what he has done and to remember in a specific way. So I'm asking you to examine yourself now. 1 Corinthians 11 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a person must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. So before we come to the table together, let's take a moment to examine ourselves. And here's some questions to assist you in that examination. So after I read these questions, we're going to have a short time of silence. And then when the music starts to play, we're going to ask uh, the people who can take the supper to come forward and take the elements and go back to their seats. And then we'll take the supper together. So here's some questions. First, are you in Christ? Are your sins atoned for? Have you believed if you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, then this isn't the meal for you? And I would plead with you, instead, take time to reflect on how Christ served you by giving his life as a ransom for you. Two, have you been baptized into the body of Christ? That's a step of obedience after salvation. This meal is for baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. For, people who, for the people of God who have obeyed him and being baptized. Are you walking in repentance? Are you harboring sin or are you refusing to let it go? In other words, do you need to be cleansed? If so, confess your sins to God. And this is for all of us. Confess your sins to God. Be forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness and then come eat. Are you walking in reconciliation? Do you have something, some unforgiving problem between you and other brothers and sisters in Christ? Confess those. Forgive. Commit to ask forgiveness. Commit to go and ask for forgiveness now. And then five, do you belong to a church that preaches the same gospel preached here? Are you a part of the people of God? God calls his followers to be his church. He dwells in us. So do you belong to a local expression? So use this time as we take the elements to pray, ask forgiveness and remember what our Lord has done for us. So let's bow our heads and in just a moment, the music will start and we can come forward.